Welcome to the May edition of the Pensions Podcast from Stevenson Harwood. You can subscribe and listen again on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. I'm Alex Rush, a senior associate in the pensions team, and I have with me here Graham Wrightson, a partner in the team. Today we're going to talk about some of the key pensions law developments up to the end of April 2018. Firstly, Graham's going to have a look at something that's on everyone's mind at the moment, GDPR. Thanks, Alex. In case it's passed anybody by, which I doubt, the European General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, comes into force in less than a fortnight and heralds a step change in data protection law in the UK. With GDPR Day, the 25th of May, looming large, we thought it would be useful to remind trustees of some of the actions which they should be considering taking to ensure compliance with the new data protection regime. The starting point for ensuring compliance with the GDPR is a data audit, or data mapping exercise. This goes some way towards satisfying the new requirements and helps trustees identify what other actions they may need to take. Ideally, trustees should have completed the audit by now, or at least be at an advanced stage in the process. Where we've been helping our trustee clients to undertake an audit, this has time and again thrown up a number of key actions. Trustees should be adopting a data protection policy which sets out a framework for how they collect, store, process and protect personal data. Members and beneficiaries need to be issued with a revised scheme privacy notice, in order to satisfy new obligations in relation to the provision of fair processing information. As part of all of that, the trustee should be considering the legal bases for processing personal data. Member consent will generally become more difficult to obtain, and so alternative courses of actions might need to be considered. The data protection regime extends to former trustees and former third-party service providers. Trustees should therefore be writing to them to request that they return or destroy personal data that they hold in relation to the scheme. And finally, third-party service provider agreements probably need a review to ensure that they're compliant with the new data protection requirements. As you'd expect, we can help trustees and companies with all of the above, and are very happy for you to get in touch if you'd like to discuss what you might need to do to ensure compliance with GDPR. It's still not too late to take action, but the clock is ticking. And sticking with the data theme, the pensions regulator published its guidance for trustees on cyber security principles for pension schemes in April. Cyber risk being the risk of loss, disruption or damage to a scheme or its members as a result of the failure of its information technology systems and processes. Unsurprisingly, cyber risk can include risk to information, data security, as well as risk to assets. It also extends to both internal risks, such as risks posed from staff, and external risks, such as risks posed from hacking. The guidance sets out good practice for trustees when considering the cyber risk posed in relation to their pension schemes. Regardless of the size or structure of the schemes that they manage, all trustees should be alert to cyber risk. Importantly, however, trustees are not expected to implement all of the recommendations in the guidance if it would be too onerous for them to do so. The guidance makes it clear that the recommendations within it can be adopted proportionally to the profile of the scheme. That said, it would be sensible for trustees to maintain records which document their thought processes and which explain why the measures taken are proportionate given the profile of their scheme. TPR's recommendations are also delivered against the backdrop of a cyber risk assessment cycle, which illustrates what TPR sees as the ongoing and continuous nature of cyber risk assessment. TPR's message is that pensions trustees have an ongoing duty to consider whether their scheme meets or should continue to meet the recommendations in the guidance. This approach should be familiar to trustees in any case. According to the guidance, in addressing cyber risk, trustees should 
ensure that controls, processes and response plans are regularly tested and reviewed. They should be clear on how and when incidents should be reported to them or to other parties, such as TPR, the Financial Conduct Authority and the Information Commissioner's Office. Trustees should ensure they receive regular updates on cyber risks, incidents and controls, and they should ensure they keep up to date with information and guidance on threats. This would include regular training of trustees and relevant staff about awareness around cyber risks and how to report incidents. Trustees will also need to consider whether they have sufficient controls in place to minimise the risk of a cyber incident occurring. They should ensure that access to data is granted at the right level and that users are regularly reviewed and access terminated if it's not required. Some consideration should be given by the trustees to the standards or accreditations which help them or their suppliers demonstrate cyber readiness and it may be appropriate to implement a response plan to deal with incidents and to help the trustees safely resume operations. Trustees are also encouraged to have a range of policies in place around the acceptable use of devices, email and internet, including social media, something which should have been picked up as part of GDPR compliance in any event. Finally, the trustees need to understand the cyber risk facing their scheme and, as a matter of good practice, consider adding cyber risk to their scheme's risk register and ensuring it's reviewed regularly. So that's it on the automated side. I'll now hand over to Alex to discuss a couple of recent cases. That's right. I'm going to cover a couple of uh, court decisions and an ombudsman determination. The first court case uh, I was going to look at is the case of Burgess and Bick. In this case, the trustees of a DB scheme, who in this uh, instance were represented by Stevenson Harwood, were successful in arguing that pension and payment increases referable to pre-April 1997 pensionable service had been validly granted. The sponsoring employer had sought to challenge those increases on the basis that the formalities under the scheme's documentation had not been complied with in providing them. The judgment demonstrates a common sense and practical approach to the interpretation of pension scheme documents, construing various powers under a trust deed and rules from 1993 as being capable of giving valid effect to a decision taken in 1991. Since the judgment confirmed that the increases had been validly granted, the secondary issue of recovering any overpaid amounts from members did not arise. For completeness, however, the judge did deal with that issue and reaffirmed the principle that equitable recoupment, whereby future pensions instalments are reduced to make good any overpaid amounts that a member owes to a scheme, would not be subject to a limitation period. The next case I'm going to consider is the European Court case of Hampshire and PPF. This has not yet been decided by the ECJ. However, the Advocate General has given her opinion in a preliminary reference concerning a now long-standing claim by Grenville Hampshire, a member of the TNN Retirement Benefits Scheme 1989, against the board of the Pension Protection Fund. The member's early retirement pension was reduced by 67% when the scheme entered its PPF assessment period and the member therefore argued that the PPF compensation cap did not give full effect to Article 8 of the EU's insolvency directive. The Attorney-General concluded that first, Article 8 should be interpreted in a way which ensures that each and every member was entitled to compensation of at least 50% of the total value of their accrued rights on their employer's insolvency. So, providing an average level of protection at 50% or above across the membership, rather than for each member, was not sufficient. Second, she considered that the directive aimed to ensure a minimum level of protection for all employees, and that would only be possible if a minimum standard applied to each individual employee. As a result of the judgment in another ECJ case, 
of robins brought from the Irish court, the board of the PPF should have known that it was not permitted to use a calculation basis which resulted in certain employees receiving less than 50% of their accrued entitlements as compensation. The Attorney General also reached the view that Article 8 could be relied on directly by an individual against the board of the PPF as a state authority. Now, it's important to note here, the Advocate General's decision is a preliminary view and not, is not the ECJ's final judgment, uh, which should be handed down in coming weeks. That said, the Advocate General's decision or opinion will be influential, albeit not necessarily followed by the court. However, if her opinion is followed, this might mean that Parliament is required to amend primary legislation to make PPF compensation compliant. And as a consequence of this, it might cause an increase to the PPF levy for all PPF eligible schemes. This, of course, like everything else at the moment, is subject to the caveat that it will depend on the outcome of Brexit. The final item I was going to consider is the uh, Ombudsman's determination in the case of Dr S. This determination involved a complaint from Dr S about a transfer from a defined benefit scheme to a defined contribution plan in 2012. The historic error in the DB scheme's administration meant that Dr S's transfer value had been calculated incorrectly and was less than it should have been. The error was discovered by the DB scheme trustees only after the transfer had been made. To remedy this error, the trustee proposed to pay Dr S the shortfall to his receiving DC plan. However, a complaint arose about the calculation of that shortfall amount. There were various grounds to Dr S's complaint, but two were particularly material to the outcome of the determination. First, he considered that the assumptions used to determine the shortfall amount should have been based on the assumptions applicable to the DB scheme before the error was detected and not on any subsequent set of assumptions. Second, Dr S had asked for that shortfall amount to be increased to take account of the investment performance he would have achieved had it been invested in his DC plan at the time he transferred out of the DB scheme. The trustee contested the complaint. First, it submitted that it had taken professional advice about the assumptions and that the approach it had taken in relation to using those assumptions was reasonable. Second, the trustee noted that it had actually agreed to increase the shortfall payment to Dr S in line with the investment performance and offered this as a remedy to him in autumn 2014, but that Dr S had not taken up the offer. The trustee considered that it would be unreasonable to have to compensate Dr S for any lost investment performance arising after that offer had been made, i.e. after 2014. In her determination, the Deputy Pensions Ombudsman partially upheld Dr S's complaint. She did not consider that there was any reason to interfere with the basis on which the shortfall had been determined, but she considered that Dr S should be compensated by the trustee for investment loss up to the date the complaint was finalised i.e. spring 2018 and not late 2014. The Ombudsman's reasoning here and conclusion about the period over which Dr S should be compensated for investment loss is quite confusing. The Ombudsman stated that the cut-off date for lost investment return would ordinarily be the date on which an adequate offer of compensation had been made before a member brought the complaint to the Ombudsman. In this case, though, she considered that notwithstanding the trustee had made an offer in 2014, it would be more just for the investment loss to run to the date on which the complaint is finalised. The Deputy Pensions Ombudsman considered that this was the case because to do otherwise would provide a windfall to the trustee. In her view, Dr S had not been able to benefit from the investment growth on the underpayment amount, whilst the trustee had benefited from the investment gain in relation to the amount which was similar to that which Dr S would have achieved had the money been paid to him in 2014. 
One might argue that this is quite an odd finding to make. For example, one could argue that there is a windfall to a trustee in any case where a complainant rejects an adequate offer of compensation. In addition, it seems the Deputy Ombudsman's view on the comparative investment performance between the DB scheme and Dr S's DC plan was done without any reference to evidence of the actual investment performance between the arrangements. So in our view, this determination may be quite limited to its specific facts, but in any case will be of interest to trustees dealing with complaints alleging loss of chance in relation to investment performance. Well, that's it for this podcast edition. Thanks for listening. Don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud, or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. (laughs) 